You're listening to Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running a wildlife education nonprofit focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho, and was made possible through a generous donation by the Nancy P. and Richard K. Robbins Family Foundation. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. All righty, guys. Welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. We're here in Sun Valley, Idaho for the Sun Valley Forum, and we are very excited to be sitting down with Katie Billadu. She works with Friends of the Clearwater. She's an expert on the importance of wilderness and, and why we should be working to protect it. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So let's start off with a little bit of just your organization that you work with. So Friends of the Clearwater, where are they based? What are they doing? Friends of the Clearwater works with the public lands in north central Idaho. I would say generally it's the public lands that's bounded by the St. Joe River on the north, the Salmon River on the south, uh, on the west side, the Oregon border, and on the east side, the Montana border. And we advocate for the wildlands that are also the public lands there. And this is a part of the country that really historically has been very wild. It's not a place with a huge human population, right? Yeah, Idaho actually has about 9 million uh, acres of inventoried roadless area. And our mission area is specifically the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests with a little bit of the Idaho Panhandle National Forest uh, have about 4 million acres of public land and 2 million of that is preserved in wilderness, but 2 million of it isn't. So So what people have ancestral claim to the lands that you're working on? Yeah, so it's the Nimipu people. Um, We know them as the Nez Perce tribe. They call themselves Nimipu, and it's translated from Nez Perce. uh, It means the people. And why is it important that people know that? I think it's important because there were people here before white European settlers came west, and they have been here for a millennia, and their their traditions are very integral with, with the land. Yeah, and I think that's something that is becoming more and more prevalent that people are taking note of is what is the ancestral claim to this land, and I think that's a great change that we're seeing, and hopefully we continue to see more of that. What got you into this position? What made you interested? Were you always like as a young child, were you like, oh, I love the forest. I want to save the forest. Or did it kind of come to you later on? I think there was a foundation there, although I didn't find it until later in life. Um, when I was when I was uh, 
in elementary school, I was very into in the environment. And I want when I grew up, I wanted to be an environmental law attorney and have a golden retriever and drive an SUV. I very love specific that. dreams. <laughs> yeah, and then I kind of, I kind of, I kind of drifted away from it because I have other interests. And um, when uh, when I was in my 20s, I came back for my master's of science at the University of Idaho, and I stayed for my law degree. And kind of over the course of that education, I think I learned a little bit more about what our federal agencies do on our public lands. I learned a, it was a good education in that respect. With that being said, what are the threats occurring in the forests that you're working with? Um, the biggest threat in the forests that we are, the two forests that I work with, the Nez Perce and the Clearwater National Forests, uh, is primarily logging. I think grazing is also a really big issue, um, but I think the primary threat is logging on our national forests. And who is behind the logging that's happening, and, and what are some of the damages that this type of logging causes? So... Because this is national forest land, the the entity that is signing off on this logging is the U.S. Forest Service. And the kind of damages that happen, um, logging kind of degrades wildlife habitat. It fragments it. Um, it releases carbon into the atmosphere. So a bunch of stuff. All bad things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. So I feel like typically... You know, if you were to mention the U.S. Forest Service to me, I'd probably be like, oh, they're good. They're probably like working to help the forest. So and it sounds like that. I mean, maybe in some of what they do, that's the case. But it also sounds in some of what they do, that's not the case. So how do we bring attention to that and how do we make it so maybe they kind of flip their own script and become the good guys in the they don't allow logging anymore? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think part of the key is is getting them out of the the logging business, right? I mean, I like so when the Forest Service sells trees off of our public lands to cut or sells the right to cut them, the money doesn't go back to the treasury. It doesn't go back to the taxpayer. What it does is it goes into their coffers to to fund their own programs. So it could it could be that a biologist working on the Forest Service isn't going to get the funds they need to like do a river like a habitat restoration in a certain area in terms of like dropping some logs and making complex stream habitat or decommissioning roads unless they have the funds to do that. And and oftentimes when road decommissioning happens, which is is great because we have so many roads on the the national forests um, it's often coupled with logging projects that in turn build more roads or build temporary roads, which still have a very significant impact on the land. So let's talk a little bit about the impact of roads on forests. Why is it, you know, you could have thousands of acres of forest that are divided in half by a road, and that has massive impacts on the type of the ways in which the organisms of that forest interact with each other. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about that. Well, in terms of the terrestrial habitat, roads will fragment that habitat. So if you think of, uh, if you if you have a house and somebody builds a road through your house and cuts off your kitchen from your living room, you can't really use that house anymore. And so that's, that's what we're doing to animals' habitat, right? Like we're cutting it in half. I guess we're rendering it more of it unusable than what would have previously 
been. And it's not just, you know, the road itself. It's it's an area that the road fragments that kind of takes that away from, from animals. And as, in terms of fish, roads often create sediment, um, which is like really fine dirt. And so rain uh, will wash that dirt down ditches to culverts, and that will go into streams. And part of the problem with that is sedimentation in streams will, if it's floating in the stream, it'll increase the stream temperature. And once it settles, it can, if it was a gravelly, rocky stream, it can bury those rocks. And that's called cobble embeddedness. It's when the rocks or the cobble get buried or embedded by the fine sediment. And that's that's a problem for for fish, especially fish of the of the salmon and steelhead family, because they lay eggs in those those spaces between the rocks. And when they hatch from their eggs, when they're fry, when they're little baby fish, they hide in those gaps from predators while they're waiting to grow big enough to migrate out to sea. And so when sediment flows off of roads and goes into, into the stream to bury those rocks, what it'll do is if the eggs are already laid, it can seal those eggs into kind of a little tomb. Or if uh, or it will like fill in the gaps and eliminate the spaces that those baby fish can hide from predators. And that's first off, very sad. That was like, yeah, little, that sounds terrible. Little fish eggs in a sad little tomb is not. I mean, it's it's something that needs to be stopped. And um, I think one of the things forests are really good at is taking water, passing it through the soil, the living, vibrant soil communities that act as a sponge slowing down its physical movement as it fell, you know, however many feet through the sky to get to the ground and then allowing it to slowly enter these streams. And and when you interrupt that by, A, putting in uh, impermeable surfaces like roads and B, compacting that soil when you're driving something over it, so it doesn't necessarily have to be an asphalt road, but the compaction that occurs when a vehicle drives over that soil, it, com- it creates these spaces and all it takes is that first little snowball rolling down the mountain to create sedimentation, right? So erosion begets erosion. When you have this first piece that starts to allow water to move faster over the landscape, well, that fast moving water is going to take sediment with it, which is going to strip topsoil, which creates more space for water to move quickly. And it is a small start that results in a very big impact. So I I know that there's people listening to this right now that are like, why does one, you know, 20 foot wide road through thousands of acres of forest matter? But it really does. And and to kind of get back to the ways that it interacts with terrestrial organisms, like you were saying, putting a road through the kitchen, there are a lot of organisms that refuse to cross roads. I, I'm pretty sure bears are one of the big ones where bears are, they're habitat, which has to be big because they're apex predators, right? They can't hunt on the same small patch over and over and over. They have to move across big tracts of land to be healthy and happy and natural. Well, they're not going to cross a road. It's a, It becomes like it could be, you know, it may as well be a 40 foot tall wall for them to get through. They're simply not going to do it. And so especially on these apex predators that uh, require big territories, roads are incredibly disruptive to the way in which they're able to forage and hunt and, uh, you know, hibernate and stuff like that. So it's, I'm glad we're having this conversation because roads are are a huge issue in, in wilderness. Yeah. And I, I would add to that even, um, especially with openings, uh, lynx, which is kind of a member of the cat family, 
will uh, there's there's science that discusses like links won't cross openings that are over 40 acres generally, and one acre is about a football field. So they'll they won't cross those like with openings that have been put on the landscape like that. If anybody who's listening is at all interested in like why animals are where they are or where they are not, I'm going to recommend a book right now called Song of the Dodo, David Quammen. And he talks about, it's really about islands and how organisms do or don't appear on islands. But he opens the book with a metaphor talking about if you have this beautiful Persian rug and it's functional in a home, it it ties a space together, it's a, a place to clean feet, whatever. If you take that same rug and you cut it into 100 squares, you have the same amount of rug and exactly 0% of the usefulness of that rug, right? Because it has been divided and, and chopped up. And that's what clear-cut stands and roads do to forests um, on top of the fact that you're actually removing forests, right? So so it's, it's even worse than that metaphor. So this insularity that occurs is bad in a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons. Yeah, that's actually an excellent metaphor for like wildlife uh, habitat fragmentation like breaking it up. Yeah. What are some of the changes that you've seen, good or bad, in your time in this position? Um, I've seen it, I think, getting a little bit harder to protect these areas, but I also see the importance of doing that. And um, a little harder to protect these areas because uh, there are laws that Congress has put out most recently under a law called, that was a, a Bush administration law called the Healthy Forest Restoration Act, which allows the agency to propose and authorize logging projects with less of an environmental review than what the National Environmental Policy Act would have otherwise made them do. And that is, it's kind of hard to fight. But on the, the flip side, I'm seeing you know, more people care about these areas and know that they're important. And I'm seeing this like passion kind of start to bubble up. So yeah, that's, it's good to see that passion. What does your day to day look like as the staff attorney? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, you should have seen her face when Sarah (laughs) asked her that question. Uh, so just calling me the staff attorney at this point, I think is almost inaccurate because I, <laughs> I do I do a lot of policy stuff. It's kind of like anything the organization needs. We're a staff of three right now and two of us work on policy issues and all three of us go out into the field. So, uh, you know, your average day could be um, like last summer I was helping to write a report on clear cutting international forests. Um, last fall I was out in the field monitoring. I will send in uh, Freedom of Information Act requests to our government because citizens have a right to know what our government's up to and we have this excellent law that gives us that power to get that. So I, I will get that and summarize the information and sometimes it goes into reports. Um, I can't can't think of other things like uh, oh yeah when there when there are logging projects uh, the Forest Service will put it out for comments where the public can comment and so our organization gives them the science like if the Forest Service says we need to to thin the threat so there's there won't be wildfire in this area we give them the science that says this is this is actually not a thing like you're gonna you're gonna create more of a fire hazard by logging or you should take care of this area 
um, because these streams have already had logging projects and there is chronic sedimentation in these streams. So it's it's really wide array of stuff. It, it's an interesting day today. Yeah, or like these trees literally need fire <laughs> to reproduce. Yeah, or even, you know, like lately we've been really concerned with... So Biden has had this uh, old growth executive order out. And what what we've seen in our area of Idaho is that the the National Forest or the Forest Service in our area of Idaho actually already has an acqu- a requirement to maintain old growth. And we find that since they've had this, they have this requirement under a uh, forest plan, um, the Forest Service has to come out with a forest plan, which is kind of generally how they manage stuff, and they'll they'll impose standards on themselves. And the forest plan that's in operation now on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forest are both from 1987. And in 1987, they said they were going to inventory the old growth, that there would be at least 10% old growth forest-wide, there would be 5% old growth in each watershed. And um, we're we're finding that not only is there not an, a forest-wide inventory of old growth, but there's some areas where it looks like there's less than 5% old growth in each watershed. And, you know, of course, when it's a, a logging project, those are the those are the money-making trees or the big and old ones. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that's kind of come up a couple of times in this conversation in a couple of different ways um, is the ways in which things are named. Uh, and what they actually are, right? Mm-hmm. So the act that you were talking about, the, the Bush era act, what was the name of that? Uh, the Healthy Forests Restoration Act. Okay, that's the one. The Healthy Forest Restoration Act is the one that's making it harder to protect forests because yeah. it changes the, the needs for it or removing fire risk, right? The ways in which the forestry service is talking about what they're doing does not match with the action itself, right? Yeah. It, it, it's all about how it's presented so that it is palatable to people as opposed to what is the actual effect from what is occurring. Yeah, we're actually, um, my organization is in court right now trying to stop a logging project that is titled a restoration project. And it would log over 3,000 acres, uh, many of them in clear cut sizes that are bigger than 40 acres large. So uh, they're kind of supersized clear cuts of sorts. And it would it looks like it will eliminate old growth if this project goes forward. And so we're trying to stop this restoration project. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said for going beyond the name, going mm-hmm. beyond the headline, right? Yeah. Um, so one thing that I'd like to kind of leave this on is what can people do? If somebody is listening to this for the first time they've heard of this issue, what are ways in which they can have an impact? So there, there are several ways to be a good environmental citizen for our public lands. And the, f- the first is to enjoy it, is to get out there. Because a lot of times when there is an organization that does have to bring a lawsuit to protect stuff, we need actual humans that have been out there that will be injured. And so you can come into court and say, you know, I've like, I, it matters to me if you take away this area. Um, but when you're out there enjoying it, take pictures of the good, take pictures of the bad and take pictures of the ugly, because it's really important also for some of the grassroots nonprofits to prote- protecting these areas. It'd be very helpful for them to have the bad pictures and the ugly pictures because it, it helps kind of propel uh, action, a reaction forward. Um, I'd also say don't default to authority. Uh, if you're working for a federal agency, fight for the scientific accuracy. And if you're outside of the government, 
I think that oftentimes you'll like it's not uncommon for federal workers to kind of speak authoritative like authoritatively to you as if they know more when they're not always right and it's not always legal. So don't just automatically defer to them. Ask many questions. Like it's really important to ask questions. Uh, find an environmental issue you're passionate about and educate yourself. And then when you know about that, educate others as well. Uh, second to last would be like take part in the public process. When when there are projects on these public lands, uh, the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management or the Fish and Wildlife Service have to get uh, comments from the public. And so I think it's very important, especially that the public pushes back on some of these logging projects. So I think it's important to, to put in your two cents and you're allowed to do that uh, as a citizen. And then um, as a citizen or resident of this country, I should say. And then finally, vote. And I think that's also, it's very important that we can hold our leaders accountable for what's happening in our public lands. Yeah. Something interesting that you said that I think is really easy one and something that most people kind of already do. And one part of what you said is take pictures of yeah. the good. Mm -hmm. Lots of people do that. Of the bad, the ugly, not so much. When we go hiking somewhere, you know, and I see something ugly, I'm probably my first thought is not like, oh, I should take a picture of that. But it's a really great point that taking those pictures and posting it and, you know, if you're on Instagram or something, saying like, oh, wow, we went on this beautiful hike and like, here's this pretty picture. But also like there's all of this like logging being done here. Like what is happening? You know, that's just bringing more attention to that side of it. So that was a really great point. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. This is a really fun conversation. Um, if somebody wanted to learn more about Friends of the Clearwater, uh, where can I send them to go learn more? Uh, well, they can go to our website. It's www.friendsoftheclearwater.org. Perfect. So if you guys are listening, scroll on down in the show notes. I do this basically every time. You know the drill. Uh, I'm going to drop that link right there so you guys can go straight from this episode to learning more about this awesome organization. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We'd love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something that you want to know more about, be sure to let us know. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts will help other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to the people working to protect our planet, and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week.